This is a Now Magazine podcast. Hey out there, Toronto. Welcome to Now What? I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and I'm also your host for this podcast, which looks at how we're all dealing with life in the age of coronavirus. Last week, staff writer Samantha Edwards wrote a cover story about how COVID-19 is forcing Toronto to confront its rental housing crisis, and whether a rent strike on the 1st of April might spark real change in landlord-tenant relations. In today's episode, she joins me to follow up on that story and to share an interview with Leilani Farha, the United Nations Special Rapporteur on the Right to Adequate Housing. Hi, I am Samantha Edwards, and I'm a staff writer at Now Magazine. So this is your first time on the podcast. How, how, how's it been going? You know, I think it's going as well as can be expected. I think it's starting to set in that this is a very, it's just so weird. I feel like the <laughs> weeks are going by really fast. I can't believe we're on the fourth week. Um, I'm watching a lot of TV. I'm reading a lot, which has been nice, but I miss going outside, and <laughs> seeing my friends and just kind of doing normal stuff. Yeah, I just miss, I miss going to coffee shops. I miss stopping for a latte. I just haven't done that in a month and it's killing me inside. I know, like I make my own drip coffee every day, but I really miss like having Americano and yeah, I miss like go, I miss, I miss the coffee shops too. I miss like going outside and not being stressed about touching my face or being in a store and not having to worry about that. (laughs) Yeah, it's really all these new normals, all these tiny little things that we have to adjust to. I'm amazed that collectively we're all managing, that we're all doing this without collapsing into tears wherever we are. But maybe we are, we're just not doing it publicly, but it's just been so strange. Well, I think as journalists, we've been very busy covering the crisis. And I'm kind of worried that I haven't had really had a chance to process what's going on. And uh, I think that in maybe a few more weeks, it's going to kind of hit me like, oh, yeah, we're going to have to potentially be inside and physical distance for maybe for months now. And that that reality hasn't quite hit me yet. And I think it hasn't quite. I don't know, actually, maybe it has hit other people, but it hasn't hit me yet. Good for you. Keep running. Keep moving forward. (laughs) And we just ran a cover story in uh, Thursday's paper about the fact that coronavirus is forcing Toronto to confront the rental housing crisis like never before. So this is going to drop on Tuesday. We're recording it on Monday. It's been four days. Has anything changed? Is anything changing? Is Toronto confronting the crisis? Right. So, yes, I wrote the cover story and it was kind of inspired by this growing movement of tenants saying, you know what, I can't afford to pay rent in April because I've experienced job losses or I had all these jobs planned for the upcoming months that have been canceled. So I'm going to not pay rent. And it's a movement that we're seeing in Toronto, but also in other major cities in the U.S. And so the article started off looking at what is uh, what kind of momentum does the rent strike have and why are these people uh, participating in it and withholding their rent? And also, what does this mean for Toronto's uh, rental housing crisis? And since the story came out uh, last week, and so now it's been a few days since April 1st, some tenants who have withheld their rent are already getting eviction notices from their landlords saying, hey, you didn't pay rent. Uh, this is kind of grounds for 
eviction. Uh, some landlords have been um, more accommodating for sure and are saying, how about you pay what you can on the first or what you can as soon as you can. And when you're able to get funding from the government, the Canadian Emergency Response Benefit, then you can pay the rest or can you pay X amount um, for April. I think at the end of the day, it's a super scary time for tenants, especially if they're getting eviction notices already. Well, yeah, they're not enforceable, right? I mean, Doug Ford did just say, if you have to choose between food on the table and paying your rent, put food on the table. So is there actual legislation in place to protect people? Or is it simply a question of hoping hoping landlords will do the right thing? Yes and no. So you're right that eviction orders can't be enforced. The difference between an eviction notice and an eviction order is that a notice is saying that a landlord wants to evict you. And an order, an eviction order, has to go through the landlord and tenant board, which is basically like the court system for uh, for tenants and landlords. So uh, they can't get actually evicted because you need an eviction order. They're not being enforced right now. Right. You can still get eviction notices. And a lot of tenants don't necessarily know the difference. Um, and of course, having that kind of threat looming over you during a pandemic is super stressful. Yeah. Yeah. And I just, I mean, again, we're all going to have to live with each other after this is done. And that includes landlords and their tenants. I, I don't, I guess I understand the impulse of trying to intimidate people into paying up. But at the same time, realistically, that just seems, that just seems like a terrible strategy. It seems like we should be yeah. better than this as people. Well, that's something that, uh, so for this week's uh, podcast, I interviewed Leilani Farha. She is the United Nations Special Rapporteur on the Right to Adequate Housing. She's based in Ottawa, and she's really involved in housing rights in Canada and abroad globally. And we talked about what's the housing crisis mean in a pandemic right now, and what can we learn from what's going, what's happening right now, and kind of what's the worst case scenario and what should we be striving to do to ensure that we don't get into the same situation we are right now. It's a really good conversation and I'm really happy that we have the chance to put it out to people. So let's just go right into that and I'll catch up with you on the other side. Okay. So I can give you a bit of background. So for this week's cover story, I wrote about how the coronavirus pandemic is causing Toronto to finally to really confront a lot of the inequities that we have within our housing market. And for this story, I spoke with a number of tenants who decided to withhold their rent for April because they had experienced job losses or they simply didn't have enough money to pay for it. And I was just wondering, what was your reaction to these calls for rent strikes, not just in Toronto, but um, in major cities across North America? Yeah, uh, I did notice that there was a, there's a growing momentum around the idea of a rent strike. Um, you know, I I guess I have a uh, maybe a slightly different take on um, what tenants should do in the face of this pandemic and their inability to pay rent. I think those I I don't what what worries me about a blanket rent strike is that there are people who are still employed and still can pay their rent. And I think in those situations, those people should pay their rent. And I'm, I'm sure those people feel similarly. Um, and then 
you know, there there is the issue of um, some landlords, not the deep pocket landlords, I'm going to differentiate, but some landlords, the less deep pocket ones, um, may actually need rent in order to keep their buildings um, because they'll have mortgage payments, etc. But at the same time, there are a lot of provisions in place, it seems to me, in jurisdictions around the world to protect to protect landlords from defaulting on their mortgages. There are mortgage deferrals, for example. So we have to see some kind of a balancing. What I have recommended is that we should have in place a notion of rent geared to income. In other words, no tenant should be paying more than 30% of their current pandemic income on rent. And so if you have zero income, well, we know what 30% of zero is, zero. If you have um, 50% of what you used to have, well, whatever your income is, only 30% of that should be going to, toward rent. Um, I do, I, I think other provisions could be made on a, uh, in a one-on-one sort of situation, but I worry about that. I've heard some politicians say, oh, uh, tenants should negotiate with landlords and figure out, you know, on a case-by-case basis. And that really worries me um, because I think tenants are in a disadvantageous position generally to advocate. It's really hard at the best of times to advocate um, uh, on your own behalf, let alone in these very, you know, crisis circumstances, households are really feeling stress and anxiety right now. Imagine if you're a, a two-person household and uh, both of you have lost your job and you've got two kids and you're trying to make ends meet. To then suggest that you should go off and try to negotiate something with your landlord over the phone, right, because you can't meet with the person, um, is... I I think that's asking a bit much. What if English isn't your first language, for example? What if you don't have courage? What if, right, you're a timid kind of person? So I'd rather see in place policies that really help tenants. Um, And, you know, I'm not sure why the government of Canada hasn't just said, um, well, they'll say it's not their jurisdiction, but I think that they should really be leading and suggesting that landlords not ask for more than anyone... uh, uh, Landlords not ask any household to pay more than 30% of their income on rent. I know in BC, the way they've approached it is just going, is giving people, I think it's up to $500 per month. And that money goes straight to uh, the landlord, which I think is great because we don't have any rent relief like that in Ontario. Instead, we have Premier Doug Ford saying, uh, like you were saying, work with your landlords. And from the tenants I spoke to, they were nervous. They don't necessarily have great relationships with their landlords. If it's a big kind of corporate-owned building and they've been asking their landlord to fix these issues like cockroaches in their apartment, they don't think that this landlord is going to be that understanding of this situation. So I think there's been a lot of confusion for tenants. Um, They're hearing that they won't be evicted, during this time, but they can still receive eviction notices. And I mean, if you're a really savvy tenant who kind of knows all of your rights, you might see the notice and say, okay, well, this isn't an eviction order. It doesn't apply to me. But if you aren't that familiar with, you know, all the nuts and bolts of housing law in Ontario, which 
I think the average person probably doesn't know, you might just think this means you have to move out right now. Absolutely. And um, just just to go back, I think the BC model is super interesting. I have to look more into it, but I, I definitely think it's interesting. And it may capture um, some people who could, in fact, afford to pay their rent uh, if it's being given sort of across the board. Um, but that's okay, right? I mean, the, for me, the, the ultimate idea is, okay, so who do we want to be the winners at the end of this pandemic? Because this pandemic will end. So who do we want to be the winners? And I think the government of Canada and provincial governments all feel, and I think there are showing signs that they really want individual households to be the winners, not to gain from this, just to come out whole. And so that it's super important to put in place, you know, policies that relieve anxiety and stress and that are very clear and that uh, on the issue of rent, which is for for tenants, it's the thing for most people. Housing is the single biggest expense. And to, to know that there is some relief in that regard is super important. I've been very clear that there should be no evictions of anybody anywhere for any reason except perhaps in the case of violence within a household and even then that the perpetrator of violence has to be housed just not in that household Um, and I've also been clear that there should be no notices you know of future evictions because the as you say some people will think that that is an eviction notice and 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 may very well feel they have to pick up and leave which is a very dangerous thing to do right now and then others will know that it's just a notice, but be very fearful. So first, they're, they're, they're suffering potential wage loss and, and, or unemployment. And then they're thinking, well, even when this pandemic is over, it's not over for me because I'm going to have to find another place to live because of this eviction notice. So it's an extra weight hanging over people's heads, which is really inappropriate in the, in the face of a crisis um, the, the the kind of which you know we're, we're faced with right now mm-hmm. um so i do think governments need to be super clear and and that's why i was looking for federal government leadership on this um they'll cry jurisdiction and i cry well this is a this is a unprecedented crisis and i i don't think there's any harm in saying very clearly to premiers across the country um that eviction is unacceptable and must absolutely uh, be prohibited uh, and so should eviction notices. There should just be a hiatus. There should be a complete hiatus on rent increases, obviously, uh, and there should be very clear measures in place to ensure that no household um, uh, is is put in a position where they, um, you know, feel that they uh, may eventually be evicted because they can't pay their rent now. I mean, if rent forgiveness um, has to happen, rent forgiveness should happen. And one of the other issues I I am deeply worried about is it's known that that households in Canada are generally outside of the pandemic over indebted. We are one of the most indebted countries in the world or, you know, by household. And it would be catastrophic for people if they came out of this even further in debt. And, um, you know, it would be unfair because for those people, and often it's low income people and um, people, you know, middle and lower income households who are the most indebted. And so the pandemic would end, but not for them, because they would 
have incurred all of this debt through uh, um, rent arrears. And so while the pandemic is over, it's not really over for those households. Maybe three years later, it's over once they pay that debt. That would be super uh, unfortunate, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Why don't you think the federal government has been more um, direct? Um, The the federal government has given money um, to address housing issues um, in a whole variety of ways, actually. So they've, I think, um, increased by a huge amount the Reaching Home program, which is for homelessness. Um, Excuse me, they guaranteed uh, mortgages, or uh, I should say, um, they backed mortgages Mm. up to the amount of 50, I think, billion dollars um, to, to ensure banks remain liquid. So the idea there is that if people stop paying their mortgages, banks will stop receiving money and then banks get into this crisis situation. And the government was trying to prevent that from happening. And so um, is basically backing all of these mortgages to ensure that banks have ongoing liquidity. Um, and they've also uh, given a lot of uh, money, well, a significant amount of money for shelters for um, women experiencing violence. Mm-hmm. Um, so there have they have and and as I understand it, they are going to roll out the Canadian housing benefit and increase it, maybe even double it. Uh, mm. Or it's the rumors. Mm-hmm. Um, so so they have put money out there. Um, is it enough? Well, you know, we could we could have that conversation, but more to the point, I think is, you know, why are they only giving money to the provinces and cities? rather than doing something themselves. I think that was your question. Mm -hmm. And there are jurisdictional issues in this country. Constitutionally, housing is a provincial and a city's municipal level um, area uh, of responsibility. And so that's what they are saying, at least in my conversations with them, um, that, you know, these, this, it's for the provinces to to determine things like what to do about tenants and whether they can pay their rent. Um, but I, I just disagree with that in this circumstance. This is unprecedented situation. Um, and I actually think the government could use its spending power because that's what it's using when it gives its money uh, in the area of housing. It could set conditions with the, that spending power. So when it increases money to reaching home for homelessness, it should be saying, and you know what, it's unlikely that shelters are going to be adequate for the um, uh, protection of homeless people uh, from the coronavirus because, of course, shelters are uh, an incubation, basically. They're incubators of of everything. And homeless people are particularly vulnerable to the coronavirus because most have or have had respiratory problems and have underlying medical conditions. And so... The feds could be saying, okay, we're going to give you X hundred, we're going to, you know, give out 157 or whatever it is, 154 million dollars for reaching home. Um, but you have to spend that on securing hotel rooms and individual spaces and places for people living in homelessness, which they haven't done. Now, some cities have gone ahead and done that. So, Toronto, for example, um, I think recently has secured something like 1,200 hotel rooms across the city um, and uh, intends to and has started to actually move chronically homeless people into those um, 
um, hotel rooms. And even better, the idea, I think, is to eventually buy those hotels if they can and repurpose those buildings to make long-term, deeply affordable housing for that population. That, to me, is brilliant. But why can we not have the federal government saying that that's what has to happen on a national scale? not just at the city of Toronto level, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and now maybe the, the city councillors in Toronto will take up the charge and start helping other cities realize that this is the only way forward in the face of this pandemic. Mm-hmm. When I was seeing that the city of Toronto was able to acquire these new hotels, and I believe one of the other buildings that they acquired earlier this month was um, a empty residential building, it seemed like, We've had this housing crisis for a long time. It would be amazing, like you were saying, if we could keep these in um, towards public housing. There's a huge wait list for affordable housing in the city. If we could hold on to that stock, that'd be amazing. That's exactly like what Toronto is doing is exactly yes, what should have happened prior to the pandemic. The pandemic simply exposes all the fissures in our society. And so the pandemic has exposed um, the, the problem of homelessness. Not that homelessness is a problem. I mean, of course it's a problem. But what the pandemic exposes is why homelessness is understood as a prima facie violation of the right to housing. If we just leave homeless people on the streets or in shelters during this pandemic, we will put our entire population, the entire population of the country of Canada at risk. That's what we what is being exposed here. And for for a very long time now, advocates have been saying that homeless people need to be housed and they and the housing first approach has been talked about ad nauseum and um, the idea of um, using public lands to for public goods in the area of housing has long been discussed but so too has the idea of um, purchasing properties and and um, increasing public assets it happens that a pandemic is a very good time to do that. We're now realizing, especially where um, ho- hotels are concerned, because, uh, of course, this pandemic has resulted in a complete destruction of the hospitality industry and um, zero vacancy in hotels. Hotels were already struggling in part due to Airbnb and so in many cities. And so... Um, now we find hotels in a precarious economic position. It is a very good time for governments to perhaps exercise a right of first refusal and to try to purchase and acquire those buildings and, as you say, repurpose, retrofit. It may, it may require some rezoning, etc., but all very important. And, and we should come out of this pandemic, in my opinion, having ended homelessness, not just in Canada, but globally is what should happen. Whether it will is another question, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to talk about Airbnb right now. Um, and so a lot of Airbnb hosts are trying to unload their fully furnished Airbnbs onto the rental market. And so these are the type of hosts who, you know, they weren't renting out one bedroom inside of their family home or uh, maybe yeah. their basement apartment. These were people... Uh, 
mostly in condos. And now that they, their Airbnbs are sitting vacant, they've put them onto the rental market. Um, some of them are trying to keep short-term, month-to-month. Others are offering one-year uh, one leases. But do you think that um, this trend will outlast the pandemic? And could it lead to an increase in the rental housing stock? Or is that too optimistic? I, I think that's pretty optimistic. You're, what you just described and exposed is what we call opportunism. opportunism. <laughs> right? These are investors. They're investors. And they're not interested in housing, in housing as a social good, housing as a human right. What they're interested in is ensuring that their investment creates profits for them. Airbnb, when you have a healthy economy and, and as you know, tons of people traveling, is a, has been for many investors a very good investment. And now they're like, oh dear, no one's traveling. What do we do with our investment? How do we keep it to be lucrative? So that's all this is, in my opinion. It does expose something, though, for um, politicians, policymakers, which is two things. I mean, it exposes, to me, it exposes um, the, the, the frailty of the hospitality industry in terms of hotels, um, because I think Airbnb was really eating into hotel um, um, profitability, etc. But it also shows us what is so what is a social good and what isn't i mean hotels are 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 traditionally used in crises as a form of social good which i find really fascinating so if you take um a civil war context often hotels will will house uh uh internally displaced persons people fleeing conflict right we saw it in rwanda for example there's a very famous film hotel rwanda um, about a hotel and a hotelier who took in uh, people fleeing um, the civil uh, unrest there and the genocide. Um, hotels have often housed journalists in, the, in a time of, of civil conflict, um, etc. And now we're seeing in this time of health conflict, hotels being used to house not just homeless people, but definitely homeless people, but also nurses and doctors and frontline workers who need to be separated from their families or who are traveling from places like China to, for example, Italy uh, to help. And so I, I love the way hotels are being exposed as this potential site of social good. I'm not so seeing Airbnb that way yet, which is so interesting, right? What I'm seeing is Airbnb hosts, investors going, uh-oh, I'm not making a profit. How can I make a profit? Um, so I mean, maybe I'm painting, maybe that's too callous. Um, and, and maybe you're right. Um, maybe Airbnb hosts will realize that it's too risky. This is too risky a venture and they'll go back to uh, renting in a more traditional long-term format. Um, I guess time will, time will, we'll see in time. Everything is being reevaluated, which is amazing. Um, does a crisis, does a crisis make us want to return to normalcy and status quo? I don't know. I mean, I think a crisis can foment a revolution. I think I, <laughs> I just read an article in the Atlantic about that. You know, um, are we are we in the midst of a p- possible revolution, or will we will this crisis um, result in a kind of wanting to go back to what we're familiar with? Who knows? Pretty interesting times, though. 
Well, yeah. And with the tenants that I was speaking to who were calling for rent strikes, obviously they want to, uh, they're calling for a revolution of sorts. They want to, they want to see housing not being used as investments and they, uh, are choosing to kind of um, to withhold the rent as a as like a social justice or a political statement. Um, and speaking mm-hmm. about kind of some of the lasting changes that could face Toronto and Canada in general um, in the aftermath of this pandemic, what would be like kind of like what would be the worst case scenarios that could that could happen? Like- yeah. So one of the things I'm keeping my eye on, and I think we all should, uh, is distressed assets and what's happening to them. So right now we're really at the beginning because, um, you know, most people were still working until the middle of March. It's only recently that we've had these 2.5 million people in Canada apply for employment insurance, right? And this is the last couple weeks. So last week and 10 days or so. And so... May is when things are going to start getting rough, May and June, and um, in particular, maybe May, June, July, right? We don't really know the timelines. Um, That means tenants are really going to be struggling to pay rent, even with the $2,000 that the government has, has, um, has offered through this emergency, amazing emergency benefit, really super, a super move by the government, in my opinion, um, but you know, if you're in Vancouver and your rent is fifteen hundred, and you're you're given two thousand, that only leaves five hundred dollars for let's say your family of four. That only leaves five hundred dollars for everything else. This is not a lot of money. We know how expensive groceries are. Um, so, what's going to happen is people will start defaulting on rent or just not paying the rent or whatever, whatever, and. Um, if that happens, then landlords who then owe, in terms of their mortgages and um, uh, their arrangements with lenders, may start um, running into some problems, may start running into some problems. And that may then um, open up or create a lot of distre- what we call distressed assets. So a distressed asset is simply an asset where um, let's say the mortgage payments haven't been made in some time. Uh, that then makes them prey to the big financial actors who still have lots of money and lots of liquidity. So pension funds still have a lot of money in them and a lot of li- liquidity, insurance companies, private equity firms. They no doubt are scanning the horizon right now. They are absolutely trying. I mean, that's the name of the game, right? They're looking. Where can we put in money that's sort of safe? What asset is safe right now? And I think they're probably going to hedge that over time, the economies will bounce back. People, will, Everyone always needs a place to live. People will need rental accommodation. And so they may very well, these big actors, uh, may well try to pick up distressed assets and then you know, do what they do, which is they buy the debt cheap. So they get a real discount on that debt. And then they use their business model to, you know, charge rents that allow them to accrue a huge profit. That's the worst case scenario in my mind. That's what happened after 08, uh, the the global financial crisis Um, in Canada to some degree, uh, a little bit later, more like um, 2015. 
but certainly in the U.S. In the U.S., you saw in 08 and 09, um, private equity firms purchasing homes en masse, so single-family dwellings. Um, and so it would be it will be scary uh, to see that happen here. Um, and that's another thing to keep our eye on for sure. Uh, are people going to um, foreclose on their mortgages? Now, you know, there is some mortgage relief in place. The government has said that and, and um, CMHC has backed that. So let's see, you know, I mean, a further worst scenario, worst case scenario, I think also goes to what I said before about indebtedness. So, you know, this, the mortgage um, deferrals that are in place now actually require people to pay their interest, I believe, and it's a forbearance. Um, so it means um, that uh, they will, it's not like, there's not a forgiveness situation. It's going to get tacked on to your mortgage, either through years or through higher payments, right? So longer mortgages or higher payments. And um, that just results in increased indebtedness. So that's also a, a worst case scenario in my mind. Mm-hmm. And so going back to the um, what you were saying about these distressed assets getting uh, scooped up. So just for example, say um, there is a landlord in Toronto or and they own maybe like a, uh, like a duplex, you know, they have four mm-hmm. units in there and they default on their mortgages. Now a company, a larger corporate, say landlord or a private equity firm, they, they buy it and then maybe renovate the units, yeah, so, maybe not. Yeah. And then so they'll just the one rent. thing, just to, in, sorry to interrupt mm-hmm. Samantha, but they'll buy it from the bank. Okay. And the bank will be like, oh man, we got to get rid of all these distressed assets. We can't have these on our books. We can't float these. So they'll sell that mortgage at a cheaper rate. So the bank takes a cut uh, and the the purchaser gets a good deal, right? That's, you have to, that's really an important part of this because that's how they then make uber profits, right? Sorry, and I'm sorry to have interrupted. No, Keep no, going. that's okay. I was just, yeah, I just wanted to kind of, kind of paint the picture for... Yeah. For people who maybe haven't experienced this yet, like um, it happens a lot in Parkdale where larger, uh, these corporations yes. like Metcap or Achilles come in and they end up pushing out long-term tenants who have affordable rent and they, you know, they renovate the other units or they just jack up the rents. And so for some people have already kind of experienced this, but in the worst case scenario, what happens to the rental housing market in Toronto after this is all over and who are, we don't know when that will be is that more of these, these are the types of uh, corporations or equity firms that buy up uh, the rental housing stock. And so those are some of the worst case scenarios. Uh, best case scenarios that things uh, <laughs> that come out of this? Well, I think a best case scenario is certainly ending homelessness. Um... That, I mean, homelessness is, as I said, I think earlier, a prima facie violation of the right to housing. And uh, there's no reason that the 10th, what was the 10th largest economy in the world, Canada, um, couldn't solve its homelessness problem. Uh, And the pandemic is showing that we can. Look at all the money and resources that have been harnessed to address the pandemic, be it... uh, the um, emergency benefit for those who are losing their jobs, or be it 
the millions of dollars that have been harnessed for women's shelters and um, to upgrade homeless shelters. So the, the resources were found and they could have been found before the pandemic. And had they been found before the pandemic, of course, we would be in a better position during this pandemic. But nevertheless, um, that would be a, a, a really great outcome, ending homelessness. Governments around the world, are states are supposed to end homelessness by 2030 anyway, because of the sustainable development goals that um, they all committed to. And which says that everyone should have access to adequate, secure and affordable housing by 2030. And that must therefore mean ending homelessness. So, um, so yeah, I think that would be really great. I think um, a really good outcome also would be uh, a recognition that housing affordability should be tied to household income and not what markets can bear. And that's part of why I've been trying to advocate that tenants pay not more than 30% of their household income on rent. To expose the idea and, and reinvigorate the idea that w- what one pays for housing should be commensurate with one's income and that that's how rents should be set. They shouldn't be set based on what a market can bear because we know that, that, the, that the market is artificially inflated. It market market prices don't exist and they're not some reality. They they get created and they get created through these big financial actors who move in to residential real estate markets and help inflate prices by inflating rents only to garner more profits. And so I think if we could return post-pandemic to an understanding that living paycheck to paycheck to pay your rent is not okay and that we as a society don't think that that's how households should have to live and that rather households should just simply be able to pay rent that's commensurate with income that would be an amazing shift um uh, and certainly one that i'm peddling (laughs) i think it would be great too if if governments stepped in to regulate the big financial actors from invading uh, a tenuous and um, a fraught housing market. Um, governments have been reluctant to do so to date, uh, really have in fact opened up uh, housing markets to the big financial actors by providing um, um, preferential tax bases uh, for for real estate investment trusts and other instruments that are attached to residential real estate, um, weakening tenant protections, um, making it possible to inflate rents, all of those things. I think if governments could put their minds to ensuring that that doesn't get replicated after this crisis, um, the way it happened in 08 and 09 and, and even before that, um, I think that would be cool. And lastly, um, if governments did decide this was a good time to increase um, public assets and buy more um, housing so that they could create more deeply affordable housing, that would be a huge and very positive outcome as well. You've just helped me figure out what I, what I need to be saying as we move into the next phase of this pandemic. So thank you very much. There are my um, four advocacy, <laughs> <laughs> advocacy positions. There you go. So that actually sounds encouraging. I feel like at least people are thinking about the best way through this, uh, even if we aren't actually implementing it yet. Yeah, I think that 
we are, there are things that we can do right now to make sure that this is, um, doesn't lead to a greater housing crisis. I think that the city has been taking, uh, acquiring these hotels for seniors and for people experiencing homelessness and other vulnerable populations is really great. And it'd be amazing if we could hold on to that. Um, I hope that the city of Toronto, the province, the whole country kind of takes these lessons and can hold on to some of the things we're learning right now. But I'm trying to be optimistic. I'm trying to think that this is also a chance to to do good things and look at it as like that kind of opportunity as well. Yeah, I just, I, I'm worried that everything will just snap back to normal because that's our instinct, right? Like we want things to go back to the way they were, even though this is actually giving us an incredible opportunity to see how things are actually inequitable on a deeper level than we ever realized. I'm just constantly being confronted with every day. There's some new thing about how, oh yeah, the money's been here for this the whole time. We just never had the the political will or the interest in making people's lives better. I agree. I agree. I think, I hope that we don't go back to the status quo. People realize what the governments can do and that there is money out there for these kind of things. So I hope people expect more and that yeah, these kind of benefits go forward too. Yeah, we can do better on almost every level. So we might as well. I mean, it's not like we have anything else to do right now, but plan. Exactly. This is a great time, I think, for governments. I know they're busy, but we can also start planning for kind of and preparing for the aftermath because it's going to be rough for a little while after. And yeah, hopefully we can we can plan for it and make some really positive change. Uh, Thank you so much, Sam. And I'm sure we'll check in with you fairly soon. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Anytime. Thanks to Sam Edwards for joining me today, and to Leilani Farah for her time as well. I'll be back Friday with another episode of Now What? Until then, keep an eye on nowtoronto.com for news and culture as it happens, and email us at web at nowtoronto.com if you have questions or comments. And if you have some free time, feel free to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you've been enjoying the show. Stay inside, wash your hands, be safe. Thanks for listening. We'll be back.